Nate Tabak. I'm the Border and North America correspondent uh, for Freight Waves, uh, based in Toronto, Canada. And I'm here with Dr. Darren Prokop, uh, Professor of Logistics at the College of Business and Public Policy uh, at the University of, An- of Alaska at the University of Alaska Anchorage. Uh, Darren, how are you doing this afternoon? Very well, Nate. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing well. Um, and these are definitely uh, interesting times to be uh, discussing uh, international trade and transportation. Um, so here's a question for you, um, and I think it's a question that applies uh, in COVID-19 times and really any time of the year, but how important is transportation planning in international trade today? Absolutely. Um, basically, transportation will make or break any international trade in tangible items, and I'm talking about trade in final goods, subassemblies, and raw materials. When you think about the cost of transportation and the time to deliver, that will either facilitate a trade or it's going to hinder a trade. Basically, um, it facilitates trade, transportation that is, when there are carriers available and third-party logistics providers are available to move shipments from one country to another. And it also facilitates trade when there's the uh, appropriate support infrastructure in place. It's in working order, and that includes the airports, the seaports, the highways, railways, pipelines, communication, hardware, and customs clearance facilities. But at the same time, transportation can hinder trade when that infrastructure is subpar or it's congested. And it also hinders trade when there's a lack of competition among available carriers and that keeps freight rates too high. For example, if there's an importer that when he finds out the cost of transportation added to the amount that he has to pay the exporter, he might say that's too expensive and the trade would therefore not take place. So basically, exporters are trying to expand their customer base into different countries, and importers are looking to expand their supplier base from different countries, and each depends on transportation facilitating and not hindering uh, those activities. And when it comes to transportation planning, there's all kinds of decisions that go on behind the scenes in order to facilitate exports and imports, like who's going to be the consigner of the freight? Is it going to be the importer or the exporter? And if there's going to be a third-party logistics provider used instead to hire that for-hire carrier, who's going to hire that third-party logistics provider? Is it going to be the exporter or the importer? So furthermore, which mode of transportation makes the most sense? Should the item go by air, and that's typically for high-value-add items, or should it go by ocean vessel, which is typically for containerized freight and bulk? And if it's over the land, well, then you have the option of motor carriers uh, and rail. So will there be multiple carriers used when you're doing the export and the import? Will there would it be an intermodal operation? And will there be more one more than one bill of lading for that consignor to deal with? These questions need to be answered. And all of those relationships I just mentioned are subject to negotiation and contracting. So there's a lot of ducks to get in a row when you are thinking about international trade from a transportation perspective. And, I, and one of the things that I, that I think is, you know, maybe you that's different today than, say, maybe 20 or 30 years ago is that I think the scale in which trade is happening is different. And it's uh, I'll give you a, a great example. I've got a, a bike uh, in the downstairs that I uh, purchased last year at a shop in Toronto 
It was made in Germany, and the shop in Toronto is the sole North American distributor for this this bicycle. And this, uh, I bought this bike while it was on a boat, I believe, from somewhere in Germany to Montreal. And, you know, and I got it probably three weeks later. And you have all these examples of just, you know, we're not just talking about big shipments of steel. We're talking about um, end-user products, in some cases, uh, coming directly, uh, you know, to the consumer through a, a much more sort of cohesive channel. Um, so when you think about that and the fact that just so many, so many individual people are really directly impacted by the role of sort of uh, how transportation is planned and this necessity to get it to people's door or the store that they ordered it from, in my case, uh, in a timely fashion. What are what are some of the challenges right now when we think about um, you know cross border transportation uh, the, uh, these days? Absolutely, and related to your bicycle example that came from Germany, we also have to keep in mind too that if it came from Germany, that was just its uh, final port of exit. There could be a whole supply chain behind it in which most of that bike's value added could have come uh, ironically from Canada potentially. So we really can't speak today about um, an item, if it's coming from Germany, makes it German, or uh, maybe a, a really good example in the United States is the iPhone that is an Apple-based product. Apple is a U.S. company. Um, but Apple uh, imports the iPhones from China. But does that make it a phone that's really Chinese? Really not, actually, because from a supply chain perspective, it's really about less than 3% of the value add of an iPhone comes from China itself. So it appears that, that it's a phone from China because that's the last point of exit. But that's just another example of international trade. And so when we think about some of the biggest challenges, in my opinion, when I'm consulting and teaching, I think the biggest challenge in international trade, cross-border transportation, is you have to navigate through uh, a maze of different regulations. And these regulations are different over all modes of transportation. When I say modes, I mean truck, rail, air, ocean vessel, pipeline. Every one of those regulations are either very different or subtly different. And each country treats these modes differently as well. So if you say, I understand how uh, trucks are regulated in the United States, they could be, and they are, regulated differently in Canada. They are regulated differently in each different Canadian province, each U.S. state, for example. So there's a real tangle to keep in mind. And it's by design, actually. It's by design that foreign and domestic carriers are not on a level playing field. Trade protectionism is still very strong when it comes to cross-border transportation. It's what we call a major non-tariff barrier to trade. Now, some may approve of these regulations and some may not. Each one of those regulations on uh, modes of transportation in different countries, each one of them has a political constituency that supports it. And these non-tariff barriers are regulations put in place to restrict trade in order to achieve some socio-political purpose in the judgment of the governments that put them in place. Like, for example, this is the same in Canada and the United States. Foreign entities can control no more than 25% of the voting stock in commercial airlines. Why is it 25% and not 30? Why should it be any percentage at all? These are political questions, but that is a non-tariff barrier to trade. 
all cabotage laws, which in the United States emanate from something called the Jones Act. Every one of those are examples of non-tariff barriers. Again, you may support them, you may not, but those are regulations that interfere with trade. So whether one agrees or disagrees with the socio-political reasons behind these regulations, they do have two main effects, and that is that foreign carriers face higher operating costs in order to comply with these non-tariff barriers, and those foreign carriers which cede the market to the domestic carriers serve to limit competition in those domestic markets, and that keeps freight, rate, freight rates higher than otherwise. Again, that may be supported and it may be not supported, but that is the uh, nature of the biggest constraints to keep in mind when it comes to international trade. Now, one, I think one of the, it's a great point you raise about some of these barriers that are, that are not tariffs. And, you know, and, you know, case, a, a basic example that if you're, a, say, a, a U.S. or a Canadian trucking company, um, you cannot pick up domestic freight, uh, you know, move domestic freight in the in the foreign country unless, of course, you have uh, sort of a domicile presence there with, with assets. And so one of the ways that, um, you know, North American trucking companies and logistics companies have gotten around this is by setting up shop in different countries you know, uh, U.S., Canada, Mexico, um, is a, is that a good way around so, I mean, to sort of get around some of these barriers um, to to sort of to being a foreign company and helping sort of uh, you know have a better uh, better access to these markets as a transportation company? Uh, right, and when it comes to cabotage regulations, as similar to other differences in modes of transportation. It's a very subtle difference, and one has to be aware of um, these roadblocks that you're going to run into. So when you mention the trucking sector, for example, by setting up operations in the United States and Canada, for example, to say, well, we'll do cross-border trade. We'll be able to, for a Canadian trucking company, we'll be able to pick up and drop off loads in the United States because we have a domicile in the United States. But the problem is that if the truck is licensed in a Canadian province and if the driver is Canadian, they won't be able to engage in those cabotage moves because those cabotage regulations apply uh, to the conveyance, the vehicle, and the uh, um, citizenship uh, or residency of the driver, independent of where the uh, company is domiciled. And another subtle difference, too, to keep in mind is um, when it comes to ocean vessel trade, uh, the United States in particular has a domestic build requirement that basically for all intents and purposes, if you're going to be picking up and dropping off uh, containers at one U.S. port to another, the ship has to fly the U.S. flag. And in order to fly the U.S. flag, basically 90 plus percent of the value of the vessel must be built in a U.S. shipyard. So that's for the ocean vessel sector. But it doesn't work that way in the air carrier sector because, uh, for example, uh, United Airlines can uh, buy Boeing U.S.-made airplanes or it could buy Airbus industry airplanes built in Europe. So you don't have the domestic build requirement for the conveyance in the air sector, but you have it in the ocean vessel sector. You don't have that in the trucking sector. We could, we could import a Volvo truck in Canada and use that uh, for cabotage in the United States under certain conditions. So there's not a U.S. build requirement for trucks. That's just one example of how these cabotage regulations are different. So if you think you know one mode, it doesn't mean you know another.
so what so let's just say that you're you know you're part of the supply chain whether you're a you know a, a truckload carrier you're a shipper logistics provider um and you're thinking uh you know maybe i want to break into this sort of you know into cross-border transportation especially right now when volumes have uh you know especially in trucking and have come down um and you just have so much more sort of uncertainty in the markets and you're thinking well, let's see if we can get uh, you know, get into some more cross-border stuff. Um, I think we've established you got regulations are different. Got to understand that. Um, what else? Uh, what else should people do? They need to know before they they get into this world. Well, basically, one thing to keep in mind when it comes to international trade and transportation is few carriers themselves handle what we would call the first mile and the last mile of transportation cross-border. So carriers have to consider working with other carriers on an agency basis in order to complete a rather long distance international trade from origin to destination. So cross-border transportation also involves uh, dealing with customs agencies at the port of entry and even at the port of exit. Um, since uh, 9-11, there's been a lot of regulations that apply to um, how items leave a port of exit, let's say. So um, those are extra little things to keep in mind. So there is going to be further checks when you're doing international trade. There's going to be further checks on cargo manifests. And that means that your paperwork, be it in paper format or electronically, needs to be in good order in order to prevent delays or fines. It's very important to be aware of some of these post 9-11 regulations related to international transportation. One prominent one post 9-11 is something called the 24-hour rule. And that means that all ocean vessels before they leave the foreign port of exit have to have all of the electronic usually manifests related to every container. Now, when do they have to receive that? Uh, 24 hours before the vessel leaves the port, not at the time that it leaves the fort, but port, but 24 hours before it even leaves. So that means that there's a lot of pre-activity that needs to be done. The reason why that this activity is done 24 hours in advance is because U.S. Customs and Border Protection wants to put this information into its computers in Washington, D.C., and then run them through. And then while that ocean vessel is on its way from the port of Shanghai or the, um, let's say, uh, port of uh, Hong Kong or even the port of Montreal in Canada, that they have time to assess these containers and then when it comes to the U.S. port to determine which containers should be pulled and uh, used for or, or put through further inspection. In other words, all of these containers are screened electronically, but only a handful of them are physically inspected because to physically inspect every container coming into the United States or Canada, for that matter, would shut down the supply chain. It would be massive um, bottlenecks and just um, really uh, end just-in-time manufacturing as we know it, and prices would just go up as a result of that. So that was sort of how they decided to, in a post-9-11 world, try to mitigate against some of, um, oh, let's say theft, terrorism, and other things. We would do 100% screening, but we would uh, try to use some sort of uh, data analytical tools to come up with which containers to physically inspect. And they basically inspect about... Uh, I would say liberally, maybe two or three percent of all of the containers coming into the United States. And that's the world we live in.
you know, it, it's when you sort of when you hear all of that at once and you're thinking to yourself, how the heck does anything get anywhere? Um, you know, that's not just sort of, you know, waiting and definitely in customs clearance. But thankfully, I think we do we do have um, free trade agreements that do facilitate the movement of goods. And uh, just recently, uh, Canada became the final of the uh, of the three uh, countries of the of NAFTA's successor um, to adopt this uh, agreement, the uh, North America, the U.S. Canada Mexico agreement. It's known three different ways uh, throughout North America. So this will be coming uh, into force uh, probably in the next uh, few months. Um, well, what are, uh, are free trade, free trade agreements good for cross-border transportation and how do you, how do you see their future? It's an unqualified uh, yes to that question. Um, free trade is about the removal of trade barriers. So there's an incentive therefore for countries to, uh, who are part of that agreement to increase their imports and exports. And that's good for cross-border transportation because transportation in that case facilitates trade. So if somebody in Montreal wants to buy something from somebody in Los Angeles, a tangible item, then transportation is necessary to facilitate that trade. And if free trade lowers trade barriers, then that is good for trade and good for transportation. But another thing to remember is that we often forget is that it's an unfortunate thing. Free trade really doesn't mean free trade. Um, and transportation is a good example why free trade doesn't mean free trade. Because transportation is an example, as I mentioned before, of a non-tariff barrier. Really, to get to the punchline, if you want real free trade, you have to have free modes of trade, meaning um, that the transportation conveyances and the operators should be able to operate freely in one country or another. It, it's basically an example of cabotage. So uh, typical free trade agreements uh, attempt to reduce the tariff barriers, the the taxes that we put on imports down to zero so that tangible items like raw materials and sub-assemblies and final goods can cross the border duty-free. But it's interesting to note and often forgotten that free trade agreements in the way that people understand them is really only the first step of economic liberalization. It, it is by no means the last. I mean, one extra way to liberalize is to say partner countries could coordinate their tariffs relative to non-member countries. In other words, Mexico, Canada, and the United States would put similar tariffs on European countries or Asian countries. But as we know, the Trump administration has tariffs on China. Canada doesn't have those tariffs on China, and neither does Mexico. Why? Because it's not a customs union. It's just a free trade agreement that Canada and Mexico and the United States have. You could go through even further liberalization and say, let's um, restrict uh, trade in terms of labor. Let's have work visas readily available for Canadians and Americans to cross border and work freely. Or you could coordinate fiscal and monetary policy uh, where you have similar interest rates um, and, and things of that nature. But that is well beyond what USMCA is doing. An example of countries that have done that is the European Union. The 27 members of the European Union are a full uh, economic integrated area. Uh, they're on their way to political union, basically, but they're not there yet. And certainly Brexit has put a halt to that. But as I was saying, free modes of trade, which is necessary for real free trade, basically means you have to allow cabotage. 
So in this way, a foreign carrier on domestic territory could ply his trade in the same way as any domestic carrier would, and that extra competition incentivizes cost control. So while free trade reduces trade barriers, the remaining non-tariff barriers are still in place and they represent an actual cost to trade. So in that way, free trade, as most people understand it, is a bit of a misnomer. If the cost of transportation is high enough due to non-tariff barriers being in place, it's possible that some trade in raw materials and sub-assemblies and final goods may not even take place. So true free trade requires free modes of trade. Do you, do you think as, as we uh, you know, sit here in, um, in 2020 um, in, a, in, a very, in a very complicated time in, in the world, in North America, and you're seeing um, you know, these questions, these, these sort of uh, how, how different countries see uh, the free movement of goods, uh, recent controversy over uh, U.S. exports of N95 respirator masks, being a, a case in point about uh, you know regulations being sort of put in on the fly to sort of you know protect uh, with the mindset of let's protect the interests of an individual country. Um, yet we also live in a very inter inter interconnected supply chain and an interconnected world. Um, the, ver the I guess the the vision for a not just free trade but sort of a you know free flow of transportation. Do you think we're going to see anything like that anytime soon? Well, uh, free trade and um, trade liberalization is always, at the end of the day, a political question. And it begs the question, when is there a convenient time to uh, liberalize trade? Right now is not a convenient time because countries feel that, um, for better or worse, that um, foreign um, trade partners are trading unfairly or that they are wanting um, the partners to send more stuff but not buy more stuff. In other words, it's not a level playing field. When you have fears of recession, that's the least uh, favorable time for politicians and indeed the citizenry to say, sure, let's open up our markets to more competition by foreign sources. Now, competition is good for prices. It incentivizes cost control. But that leaves aside the politics of, well, uh, if, my if I'm in an industry that isn't competitive and I lose my job, where's my job going to be? So it's really, really tough right now to talk uh, free trade when countries are pointing fingers at others saying, that's not fair. You're engaging in unfair trade practices. So free trade in general is a good thing, but the politics always makes it difficult to implement. Well, Dr. Darren Prokop, uh, thank you so much um, for this fascinating discussion. It's a lot of stuff to digest, and you've, you've really, uh, I think, uh, you've given us a lot to think about in the, in the movement of trade across borders at a very complicated time. Uh, thank you very much. And um uh, Dr. Uh, Darren Prokop is also a, he's at the College of Business and Public Policy at the University of uh, Anchorage, Alaska. You can also read him regularly at FreightWaves.com. You really got to read his stuff. It's really some of the smartest stuff out there uh, when you're talking supply chains. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us.